You're listening to a Sunday sermon from Seven Mile Road Church in Melrose, Massachusetts, just north of Boston. To check out more about us, go to sevenmilemelrose.com. Depending on which highly suspect survey you reference, anywhere from one in three to one in two Americans suffer from parallelophobia. Now, parallelophobia is the fear of parallel parking. So we're going to do our own highly suspect survey here this morning. So who among us is afraid of parallel parking? You can raise your hand. Okay, good, good, good. Let me ask this a different way. Who among us is afraid for the person sitting, the person sitting next to you to parallel park? Raise your hand. Wow, I can't believe you said that. It's brutal. It's brutal. Uh, all right. So parallel parking can be nerve-wracking for a few different reasons. Chief among them is the fact that you have to know how to do it correctly. Right? Uh, and if you don't do it correctly, you will feel sadness and shame and ongoing suffering of an increased insurance premium. Those are the things that happen if you don't know how to do it correctly. According to well-known philosopher George Costanza, parallel parking is all geometry. It's knowing all the angles, when to make that first turn, and then when to swing it back in. That's the key, George says. The technique can be tough to figure it out, but then all of, a sudden, all of that is made more complicated by the circumstances of parallel parking. Because by nature, parallel parking demands that other cars are always parked around the spot you want, right? Otherwise, it's just normal parking. So you have to have these circumstances. And on top of that, there's always other cars trying to pass around you too. Sometimes there may be people watching you. And you see that spot and you want it. But as you go for it, things start moving fast. The spot seems tighter. And it gets scary real quick. Again, for about a third to a half of you. And when parallel parking pressure is at its highest, there's a temptation to make a horrible mistake. There's a temptation to reject everything you've been taught and commit the largest of all parallel parking fouls, pulling into the spot head first. You've all done it. Maybe not recently, but you've all done it. Nobody's better than anybody else. But anyway, you know not to pull into that spot, spot head first, but it's too tempting it's too appealing, and you're sure that it will, it will work this time. But it's all over if you pull into that spot head first. You lose the angle. You won't be able to make it up. And if you pull into that spot head first, one of four things is going to happen. You'll spend the next 10 minutes getting really frustrated trying to make it work. You'll hit something or someone, sometimes both someone and something. You'll leave your car hanging out in the road, which is the best. Or you'll give up and you'll pay for parking somewhere else. So none of those four get you to where you wanted to be, but taking control was too tempting. You just had to take charge. You just had to follow your gut and figure it out for yourself. And with parallel parking, you won't get there if you trust your own wisdom to get you where you want to be. You won't get there if you trust your strength to get you where you want to be. So throughout this letter to the Thessalonians, Paul has said a ton of awesome stuff about what God has done in Thessalonica. He began by reminding the Thessalonian church of what God had done in loving them and choosing them and rejoiced in how their faith had sounded forth all around the region so that more and more people 
were hearing about Jesus and how the Thessalonians had turned from idols to the living and true God. God had done the work in them and the same goes for us. He's done work in you. But if we slow down for a moment and think about our week, even though Paul started with God's work in saving the Thessalonians, and even though we preach to one another, both from here, but also to one another all the time, that it's God's work and not our own work that saves, that it's God's work and not our own work that redeems. Somewhere in this letter and somewhere in this week, and maybe even sometime this morning, you thought, man, I've got to pull myself together. And maybe it was when Paul talked about living a life worthy of God. Or maybe it was when he reminded the Thessalonians that God made us family and we're to be devoted to one another. Maybe it was when Paul wrote that living a sexually pure life is God's will for you and for me. Or maybe it was when Paul told us that we should return, that he, that Jesus would return and that we should be ready for that. Or maybe it was when we were told to rejoice always and you realize that Maybe you don't always feel like rejoicing. See, undoubtedly, you and me, we've realized that there's a gap between where we currently are in our holiness, in our blamelessness, in our living our lives fully submitted to Jesus. There's a gap between there and where Jesus is calling us. There's this huge gap. We've realized that this gap exists between where we are and where God is calling us. And we know that, the, that it's also a gap between where we are and what is good, because we know that will be good for us. And we know that there's this gap between where we are and where we're supposed to be on the day that Jesus shows up. And in this letter, Paul has pastored this, these Thessalonians, and he's pastored us, casting vision for what it's like to follow Jesus in every area of life. And we just know we aren't there yet. So we live with this tension. And it's at this point of tension that our following Jesus can start to feel like we're confronting a parallel parking spot. We really need to get into an an appointment that we're late for. And that, that spot is crowded on both sides. The car behind you is honking. And a friend is watching on, just adding to it, right? And you want to park the car quickly and smoothly but things start moving fast. And the next thing you know, you're pulling in head first, doing things your way, figuring it out on your own and totally forgetting that the basis of Paul's whole letter is that God loved us first. God loved us first. We forget the bit that the basis of our salvation in Jesus now and always is that God chose us. The gospel came in word and power and conviction in the Holy Spirit. And that's how it happened. And Paul says that we're supposed to be blameless because Jesus is coming back like a thief in the night. But then someone pushes over your trash bin. Your spouse forgets something important you said. Your boss sends you an emergency email at 6 p.m. And from all of that welling up inside of you, you absolutely lose it on the person that accidentally grabbed your coffee from the mobile owner counter. Everything happens so fast and you feel terrible for yelling 
terrible. That was my pumpkin spice latte. And then you get angrier with yourself because you realize that you ordered a pumpkin spice latte and then announced it. So you say, I won't be angry next time. I'll control my anger and you try to do better. And the cycle goes on and on and on until you yell at a different person four weeks later when they pick up your peppermint mocha. See, that's the circumstance. That's a, obviously joking, but like, that's the circumstance that Paul is helping the Thessalonians through at the close of this letter. Jesus has called you somewhere beautiful, but you're not there yet. I'm not there yet. How could the Thessalonians have been there yet with only such a short time of being pastored and with such a high vision for their lives that could be overwhelming to them. And it can be overwhelming for us because with all of the circumstances, Paul could walk away from the high callings of holiness and living like worthy, worthy lives, right? Like Paul could lower the bar. That would certainly be easier in the short run. It would be easier for Paul to pastor through, and it would be easier for the lives of the Thessalonians. But let's notice in this letter, Paul doesn't do that. He sticks to high callings, but he gives hope. And he gives assurance, and nothing could be sweeter for these new believers in Jesus that are in Thessalonica. And nothing could be sweeter for us. Read, let's read 1 Thessalonians 5.23, and I want to show you what I mean. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, Paul is closing this letter with a prayer. He prays that the God of peace, the God who saves, the God who sent his son Jesus so that there would be peace between sinners and God. See, the God of peace himself, Paul prays to. And Paul prays that he will sanctify the Thessalonians completely. Now, considering Paul's view and high vision for our holiness, how wonderful is this news? God himself will sanctify you completely. Even when you don't think that he will. Even when you don't think he will. And this is wonderful news because I know me because I know my sin, because I know how dark my heart can be because I read in the Bible, what God calls us to, I find it shocking to think that God has saved me much less that I would be sanctified in any way. See, the most logical thing, as far as I can think of it, is that God would try to sneak me, Justin, sinful and messed up me, into the kingdom of heaven somehow. Like, that he would try to, like, you know, like on, on, on movies, you'll see somebody, like, sneaking in on a, on a, like, a cart or in the back of a box truck, like, into breaking into something. Like, that's how it seems like God should have to get somebody like me in. But Paul says that's not how it's going to be. Rather, he says, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And then Paul specifies body, soul, and spirit to make it clear. He means that God will make the Thessalonians, 
and you and me and anyone who believes in Jesus completely holy. He will make you holy completely. No matter your story, no matter your filth, if you believe Jesus, every bit of you through and through will be sanctified. All of you. He will make you holy. Hear this, brothers and sisters. There's a day coming when that one sin that you can't figure out how to shake will go away forever. And you will be blameless before the king. You know how you can't quit clicking that website or saying that thing or hating that person or having that attitude or being anxious about that thing? There's a day coming when you will be sanctified completely. Every bit of you, every bit of you, blameless. There's a day coming when when the strength of God will surpass the strength of you in every practical way about your life. The work of God will surpass the weakness of you. And it won't just be that one big sin. It will be every sin. Every sin that tries to kill you and enslave you will be gone. It will be gone forever and you will be blameless with no opportunity for things to go back the way they were. You'll be sanctified completely, holy through and through. Blameless, spotless. Breathe that in for a minute. You're not there yet, and I'm not either, but we are going somewhere, and we'll be blameless on that day when Jesus comes back. You and I will have whole and complete spiritual health. You'll be fully and completely aligned with the will of God. There's a day when sin won't be a thing for you anymore, it's coming. For you, for me, and for us. But how? But how? Because all that's great, but how, right? In verse 24, Paul tells us, He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. God doesn't simply love the Thessalonians and choose them and then tell them how to be better and leave them to figure it out. Paul tells us that the reason and the way and the key to the Thessalonians becoming completely blameless is that God will do it. God will do it. He says, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. The God who calls them to salvation is the God who completes. The God who calls them to salvation is the God who completes. They and we won't suddenly be faithful and able to figure things out. 
It will be God who makes them holy. It will be God that makes you holy and it will be God that makes me holy because God is faithful. And let's notice that it's not because I'm faithful that I will be sanctified. It's because God is faithful that I will be sanctified. Paul gives us the reason that all who believe in Jesus will be holy and blameless on the day he returns. And it's right there. God is faithful. His character and his being a faithful God ensures that you and that I will be holy and blameless when Jesus returns. So no matter how certain and sure death and taxes promise to be, they pale in comparison to the certainty of your blamelessness before Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ, because your blamelessness in Christ rests on the faithfulness of God. It doesn't rest on you. It doesn't rest on you. It doesn't rest on me. It rests on the faithfulness of Christ. God is faithful. And because he is faithful, you will be blameless when Jesus returns. What God began when he called the Thessalonians to believe, he will complete at the return of Jesus. And it's the same with us. So hear this good news today. No matter how messed up you think you are, God is faithful. No matter how bad you have been, God is faithful. No matter how broken your life has been, God is faithful. It is not your past or your present or your future that will dictate your blamelessness. It is the faithfulness of God. Your faithful God will bring your sanctification to completeness so that you're blameless on that day. So that means that no matter how big the struggle or the obstacle that you think might, you might not get through, God's still faithful. And Paul wants the Thessalonians to see, and Paul wants us to see that, that the completion and the, the wholeness of our sanctification is not built on our strength or our technique or our muscling ourselves to holiness, but on the faithfulness of God. The God who started to work in you and the God who will surely do it. And this also means that the hope for the Thessalonians and the hope for us is not that the road gets easier or the parking spot gets bigger or the standards get lower, but that our God is greater than any obstacle before us, including ourselves, including ourselves. Our hope is that God is greater than any, than any malfunction in our vehicle or technique trying to drive up that road and into that parking space. So while we may think we need a different ride or a different road or a different parking spot, what we truly need and what we truly have is a faithful God who picks up the whole vehicle and takes it where it needs to go. Paul then closes the letter in verses 25 through 28. 
He says, brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. See, God's faithfulness is the hope of God's family. Whether Paul or Silas or Timothy or the Thessalonians or you or me, our hope for all of life, our hope for all of death must be in God's faithfulness. And this is why Paul closes this letter asking for prayer and encouraging the church to treat one another as family. Because God's made them family in Jesus. And Paul insists that they read his letter together, knowing the reality of gathering together around the word will bind them. And he blesses them, wishing the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ on them. Paul knows what they need most, more than the presence of Paul himself, is the grace of the Lord Jesus. This church began with the faithfulness of God, and this church will carry on as God's faithful family solely because of God's faithfulness to them. The God who calls is the God who completes. The God who calls is the God who completes. See, I was late to the party on this, but I read this book called A Man Called Uwe about a year ago. At one point in the story, the main character says, men are what they are because of what they do, not what they say. Men are what they are because of what they do, not what they say. And that sentence reads so well. And it feels good because it presses us to action. Not just to words, but but action. And we rightly, many of us rightly aspire to be people who not only say we are going to do things, but actually do them. And because of that, that sentence feels good. And it also feels good because it means that I can earn my way to something. But that sentence and that framework for life is also death. Here's why. Because what I can do is such a letdown. What I'm capable of on my own only leaves me a broken down, tired, hopeless and hell-bound rebel against God. So the best news ever is that Jesus came. The best news ever is that Jesus lived a perfect life and Jesus died a perfect death because I could never do enough. I could never do what I say. It's the best news that we are what we are not because of what we do or because of what we say. It's the best news ever that we are what we are, not because of our strength or our actions, but because of what God said and what God did and what God has fulfilled 
in Jesus Christ. Like Uve, the world around you and me every day tells us you are what you are because of what you do. So you always need to work harder, faster, and smarter, and better. But we never seem to get it right, do we? Seven Mile Road, what Paul tells you in these words today, and what Jesus tells you, and what the Holy Spirit is pressing into your heart right now is that you are what you are because of what Jesus has done. And you will be what you're going to be, which is blameless on that day, because God is faithful. It's not what you have done, and it's not what you're going to do. It's what God has done. So you may feel a long way off of being blameless today. I know I do. But God will sanctify you completely. And he's doing so. The God who calls is the God who completes. God will make you blameless. God is faithful. He will surely do it. He will surely do it.